Have you ever gotten your message lost in translation? Launched a well-thought-out content on social media only to get lost in the noise? Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms Podcast. We are here to help you with practical tools to find your voice, craft shareable content, stand out in the marketplace, expand your tribe, and convert followers into ambassadors or customers. I'm Torrent, your host, a message master that's helped leaders, entrepreneurs, and businesses ignite their message with lasting impact. Each week, we will go behind the scenes to share real and deep conversations with the most prominent message masters on how they took an idea and crafted content that have trended to the stratosphere, boosted the bottom line, and improved the world around them. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms podcast. I'm really excited to introduce to you Scott Martin, who is now leading Groundswell Marketing, which is groundswell.marketing, and having him on because he's an expert on how to build movements. He's been in the business for about 25 years, part of the business with the internet, moving it forward with website, internet, social media, and is right now in the middle of writing a book, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that book come out. And so I just want to welcome you. Scott, how are you today? Thanks for letting me have me on your show. It's awesome. Well, it's like it's and and, and you inform the guests that you and I've actually done had a lot of time together. It's not like it's a I'm a rando. You you and I have worked together for a really solid uh, I'd say ninety days, right? Yes. So it was great to see you interact, and I and I'm really impressed with how you keep yourself cutting edge, and you always keep yourself with the newest. You surprise me. I would love, I think, for our listeners just to learn a little bit about your background first, about who you are, where you got, how did you get into marketing, and then go from there. But kind of like learning a little bit about how do you have these hacks and see these wonderful things that come up on the forefront. I've been marketing since I can remember. In fact, you know, when I was, I think when I was like seven or eight, we used to have this uh, lunch break between church services. My parents were pretty involved in the church, and I saw um, how one of the elderly ladies was uh, doing well at the craft fair with these clothespin rocking chairs and, uh, and made some <laughs> and duplicated the idea. And then they just did it at a cheaper price. And I used my, my young charm. And that was like me and, and me cleaning up and using that to pay for my Star Wars action figure obsession. So, you know, it's like, I, as far as I can remember, I've been kind of this weird blend between marketing and being an entrepreneur my entire life. Like we, I was a missionary kid. In the Philippines, so you know, after living in California, we went to the Philippines, and I think I would have been at that point eleven or so. And uh, on this base, that's a private base for these Christian missionaries. Uh, they're quite strict. So I had this—I uh, uh, don't know if you've anyone's familiar with the eucalyptus trees. They had curl the bark of the the tree curls, and you can kind of break it up and stuff. And and I had the notion of making uh, eucalyptus cigarettes, and all it was like this underground. <laughs> underground sort of like black market I created amongst the, the church kids. How do they taste? How did it, was it to smoke them? Oh, they're terrible, you know, but I, but I, but I remember specifically I had, I got totally found and what got me was I branded my cigarettes. I didn't actually go generic because I had little lightning bolts on them. So that's actually how I got to, that ended my little, my little, uh, you cook this cigarette empire in the Philippines. As a kid. So it's just, it, to me, that's like the branding, the marketing entrepreneur, those two stories of kid. Like I didn't even know what it was at the time, but I did it naturally. So I would say, you know, I guess to the point of like my real history for the last 25 years, I've been marketing and the journey has been really, really fantastic. Like at the beginning of, of the dot-com boom, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. 
and my youthful enthusiasm for just the internet at the time I was selling websites, I did so well. And this was a time when people were going, explain to me this internet thing and we need to be online. And, and of course, you know, your the wind was at your back and, and I ended up doing so well that the president of the company actually, his venture capitalist actually spun me into my own company. And in my early twenties, I had quite a, uh, a ride with focus of, and you were saying before, like, how do I stand, stay on top of, of some of these trends? I think this is because I became really obsessed and passionate about things that could make such a difference from a business standpoint in a creative way. And at the time, it was personalization. And personalization was just like beyond people's imagination. At the time, you can remember, if anyone can remember back at, at the, the, the Amazon, when they used to make these recommendations. We're talking about, you know, your, your podcast is about words. And these recommendations would surprise people because it's based on uh, a personalization technology called collaborative filtering. And what it would do is it would take, if you'd like these two authors or these two pieces of, or three bodies of work, we'll say, and about 10 of the people like you had bought those three works and they'd also bought one or two of these other ones, it knew the pattern recognition, recognition knew it was called collaborative filtering would actually recommend the book. And you're like, oh, wow, these are great. And that's how Amazon grew to be successful initially was because you trusted Amazon. It started with trust because it was able to provide these really great recommendations. So that's just an example of my journey of personalization. When I started this dot-com uh, company as president, I became completely passionate about... What's that? Next click, yeah. Yeah, I became an agency specifically around furthering personalization technologies and integration of them. And uh, one of the ways that I wanted to be innovative was, and this is an early sort of groundswell notion was I was like, there's all the, at the time of .com, you could not compete. There was all these like business 2.0 magazines, all these ads, there's so much buzz, so much money running around. I'm like, how do I rise above all the noise? And I got mentored to basically go start a nonprofit industry group, which was called the Personalization Consortium. Because at the time, personalization, the big concern, of course, was uh, around personally identifiable information. And it is today, but not to the, it was so much different then. I mean, people people were freaking about then. Now they just post liberally on their social media sites. But I wanted to start a way to be the lightning rod of towards a solution on ethical information management. And so that ended up getting me at an early, you know, my early 20s, um, starting a board of directors. I had Don Peppers as chairman of the board. He's the guy that really is the, Godfather of, of UX and, and AI and one to one marketing is really based on the books that he's he and Martha Rogers created. And that got me a lot of exposure, public speaking, and it really rose, it really created a groundswell around Nextflick and creating visibility that we didn't have to spend much money on marketing. We put this energy and create this nonprofit. And it connected us. You're doing like a thought leadership kind of strategy where you you positioned yourself as a thought leader and people gravitated to you. So you didn't have to market that much. And, and what's amazing is I wasn't really that much of a thought leader. I only knew a little bit more than most people because I was so young. I didn't actually know how to implement it. I didn't see all the pitfalls, but it really got me tons of visibility and I learned a ton. So yes, it did position our company as a thought leader and we skipped over all the people who were spending all this money trying to create visibility for the dot-com. Unfortunately, the dot-com era ended. It landed pretty hard and so did my business. And uh, I ended up uh, working through several large uh, agencies. And that gave me some just incredible experience. At the end of, of working for other agencies, I, I had determined that I was going to be going out on my own and I ended up having an agency for about 10 years. And uh, as you alluded to at the beginning of the, of the podcast, that agency for 10 years was focused on personalization, direct marketing, measurable marketing. And I really 
focused my skill set on anything that could be measured. And I pretty much did every modality from apps to ticketing systems to loyalty engines um, and that, that and beyond. But that also became another era change. So you can imagine, you know, 10 years later, 10, 12, 15 years later for the dot-com boom is uh, we were building a lot of these apps and I could see that content and was going to really be the shift towards a way to market differently. And I ended up leaning hard into that. I started a, a content marketing company called Laundromat Studios. And for about 12 years, I um, was doing a lot of backcountry filming content uh, and so forth for documentary style content. And really just those combinations of, of you know, my long history of personalization, my 10 plus years of direct marketing, response-based marketing and, and digital combined with my content marketing focus is, is really what's given birth to what I'm doing now, which is groundswell, which is I've identified patterns. I've seen the course, uh, the trajectory of the different accelerations of different technologies, but the common methodology that I'm seeing is one that I'm seeing in the universe, I'm seeing in nature, and I'm seeing naturally, which is a reoccurring exponential growth that starts from a, a really powerful idea or a really strong, purposeful, and focused direction. This is what's so cool is that you've had this this professional, but you've you've kind of taken this groundswell passion, and we'll go back to what you're talking right there, but this groundswell passion in networks and groups. You've really been able to live and breathe what you do and everything that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's because I'm testing it, really. You know, it's like, it's true. I do eat my own dog food. I'm, I think what you're saying is like, I've also, you know, created really a groundswell movements with communities and learning how to accelerate creating, you know, groups of people around an idea with very little marketing energy or expense of that, for that matter. And that's really just more and more validated that there is a process, a formula, a system, and a step-by-step way that you can actually manufacture your own groundswell. And typical groundswells start from movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. That was a groundswell movement. To me, it's like you can, as a business, you can leverage a lot of these patterns and ways that you can do this. But at the end of the day, unless at the quarry you're doing something meaningful, purposeful, making the world a better place and really congruent, it won't work. This is the one thing I love about it is that if you're, if you're doing something that's nefarious or uh, you're not being real authentic, this doesn't work. And I love it because it really gravitates to the people that are committed to meaningful change. Because when you're committed to meaningful change, you're willing to build a distance. It's not that it can't have an immediate effect. It does. But it definitely gets exponential returns over time. And that's really the, the, what my book's about is how do you generate a groundswell. But what's interesting, you're saying that you cannot create that kind of groundswell without being authentic and without being real with your message. How do we see the, the non-authentic thing? How do we see that? How is it that we gravitate to the real? I guess that's what you're saying. Yeah, and congruent. So you can be doing great things for the world. But if you're not really super clear and people aren't, aren't they don't, they're not clear about your destination, where you're going, or your message is, is not completely clear, they can't buy into it. So it's the difference between I can buy that, I can buy your, you can buy my attention, you can buy a little more time with me, you can maybe get me to buy a product, but I'm not bought in. Bought in requires a really deep, meaningful connection about something that you share in terms of values. People buy based on values. People buy their time with values. They'll buy attention sometimes on values. But long-term, it'll be on values. Bought in. I like that concept. Yeah, bought in versus buying, right? I mean, that's that's the shift that I think we're... I think there's like this really interesting time with this 
I don't really call it post-COVID because it's still here, but where it was such an age of attention, right? Where it's like, pay attention to me. How do we get more views? So it's like, as business and marketing and everything, it's about announcing, yelling. And I think the shift has happened where it's about trust. It's no longer about attention. I think people feel differently now with COVID. They've internalized things. I think their values have shifted. They're, what's important is shifted. I think whether you're a buyer, voter, movement, whatever it is, there's a shift and we all can feel it. And I think one of those is really promising for businesses that are doing good in the world because I think people are really looking for that meaningful. So you can still be meaning to be authentic, but if you're not congruent, I think is what I'm saying is that I mean, there's many well-meaning businesses out there that don't seem to get any traction. You think you wonder why they don't it's right. because their message isn't clear. It's because you're not clear about where they're going. They're not congruent with all that. And they're not, I'm not buying in because I don't believe that they are going to go there. Does that make sense? Like some people. Yeah. You think it's because business- they don't know each other. They don't know themselves. Cause I think what was interesting, I had David Perman talk for a couple of weeks ago and he, he's kind of like in a similar field with you, like with the whole phenocracy. I've actually had him on my podcast. I know. I saw that. That's what you inspired me. And I was like, I'm going to ask him too. <laughs> but what was interesting was he talked about the whole thing about fans and that you have to go out there and show yourself. But I think some of us, or at least what I was telling him is that we're so brought up not to be authentic. You've gone into this corporate world and you have to fit into the corporate feel and, and the way you're communicating. So then when you're finally going out being an entrepreneur, being yourself, you don't even know how to be yourself. And I think that's a lot with companies. Since you've worked on content marketing, how do you find the clarity and the truth within you? Because that can be a long process sometimes. It can be. It's a journey. I think it's true. If you think about businesses, you used to have to go to suit. There was like a certain protocol. There's like all this stuff that... And now you're seeing if you're an entrepreneur, even if you're just working from home, you're doing a Zoom like this and I'm wearing a ball cap. And it's like, it's no big deal. Like you're seeing everyday deals go down where people are dressed and they got a dog barking in the background. That is what's changed. Where before that would have been considered, quote unquote, unprofessional. The professionalism is now focused on the meaning of the word, the quality of the content, and the congruency of what you're saying and doing more so than what you wear. The process of protocol and so forth i think that those that pageantry is behind us well how do you shed the layers because i think when you're so taught to be that it was interesting because like david vermiscott was mentioning to me you need to put i more into your linkedin profile you need to claim who you are and be personal and talk about yourself and i was like i was like well that is such a hard process because i've been taught that for 20 years in my career to be behind the scenes and do the we do the corporate speak and it's how do you shed the layers and to be clear. And I think that's a process a lot of companies are now going to have to go through. So there's two pieces to that. So it's basically what we're talking about is personal brand, right? Your personal brand on LinkedIn was referring to is how do you convey your personal identity in a unique way? It's applying the same, the same process that you do for branding, which is there's brand identity. So that's the, what people see, the photo, the picture, the, the copywriting. That's the brand identity. And I think people go straight to that first. Right. Now, if you're writing a book or if you're, you're writing a piece of content, we're talking about content marketing, if you just go and, and, and just create content, you ever sometimes notice some people, like, none of it connects. Like, it's like, you don't know where it's going. You don't understand the story. They've got a lot of content. Well, it's because they haven't actually done what's underneath that surface. So if you like an iceberg, the, the top bit that you're talking about, the, the, the layer of, we'll call it the personal brand, the identity, right. 
that's the top part of the of the iceberg. And it's like, usually it's like logo name, you know, for a business and a brand, right? The tagline. But what's underneath it there is mission, vision. Another one that's going to is called brand mantra. And I think a lot of people, you're going to see the rise of personal brands are going to start adopting this, which is, Torn, what is the feeling? So this is a brand and mantra for brands and I think for personal brands. What is the feeling you want people to have when they interact with you? It sounds, seems so simple, but when you describe it, because you know the, the saying, people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And so if they feel that if they, the way that they talk to you, they have a conversation, they listen to this podcast, they see you on LinkedIn, and it's all congruent, that feeling, right? That feeling that I get going, wow, she really is focused on the details. She's really inquisitive. She's naturally, these are things I believe about you, right? Like, you know, you're, you're incredibly intelligent. You're always looking for these like little game-changing difference makers and stuff. Like, so to me, I'm like, is that congruent across all what you do? When someone sees that, they're like, oh, I can buy into this because it seems that you've got your shit together for lack of a better term, right? Like you've really got it clear. So, so that's, I think is one of the first things is like, it's, 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 even though it's like, you need to announce yourself, you need to be congruent. So what's your, so people want to know, like, well, what's under the engine? In your terminology, how do you define it? So congruency for me is that if you say what you do, what you believe in, the posts that you make, the, the language you use, the actions you take are in line. So if I say I'm about sustainable living, but I'm not being sustainable in my own life, I'm not presenting it, I'm not living it, sooner or later, that's what will damage your brand and go backwards if you're a charlatan or if you're not fully committed to it. You know what I mean? So that to me is where the congruency comes in. It's like, what do you stand for? What do you promise? If I stand for, for helping entrepreneurs achieve freedom and then and get rid of the shackles of the cash flow, the month-to-month cash flow, and to have freedom with long-term predictable revenue, I need to be able to demonstrate that in everything I do, whether it's my Facebook groups, my marketing, my podcast, the type of guests, the conversations I have. What mixes people up is they think they're being congruent, but what they do is they sometimes bring in other messages, other things that they also care about and they're passionate about. People don't know which one's the priority. So it's just really anchoring that priority of what you stand for. But it's kind of like what you're talking about ecosystems. Very interesting you say that because it's kind of like we're both in, we're both like part of this Tony Robbins virtual event this weekend. And he's talking mm-hmm. about we can have several different purposes because you have many different interests. And you've done many different groups. And I think what's really interesting is you've been so successful. I think you've got the most engaged surfer community, if I've understood, in one of your Facebook groups or networking but then at the same time, you have other groups. So is it that we can have many messages, but we have to make sure we're channeling correctly? Like, how do we stay true and at the same time don't confuse? Because it's kind of like what Tony Robbins said this weekend. We can have many different purposes. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a thing about like weighting. Like how much weight you put on. So in your professional life, I'm about sustainable growth marketing. But my name is called Groundswell. My logo has a wave on it but my passion is surf art and surfing. So there's a connection. So you get a little flavor of my personality. So that makes me feel like that's real to me. Like it's like my name isn't something totally unrelated to it, but some people may want to have a delineated line and just go, my passions are my passion. I have blended mine in because it's just part of who I am. It's like, I want everything that I do to be sort of like intertwined in some way. But at the end of the day, the majority of my energy, the majority of what I talk about, the things that I put the most 
time and value and marketing attention too is on helping entrepreneurs, right? So using, but they can see the flavor of the different things that I love. So I think that it makes you, that's the thing that's the DNA that makes you unique. I think people shy away from bringing in their passions and all these other purposes because they are worried about the very thing you just described, which is being confusing or they feel that it won't. And, and I think that's part of the process you go through under the surface of the iceberg is you really outline sort of the weighting of certain things, like some things, you know, and when do you, and how do you, and what's your purpose? As long as that purpose that, that we call it the North star, North star is something that you, you know, you're aiming toward. It's not necessarily success of a dollar value. It might mean I want to have hundred thousand visible followers that are into sustainable market. So that means something. I loved it because when we worked with a client together, we did jobs together. It was so great because you could talk 80% of the time on the groundswell. But then what made you so interesting is that you had a, a similar passion to the client, which was surfing. And then you guys got into this whole thing. And when we were even working on the project together, because you knew all these surfing, which I don't understand much about at all, but through you, I've learned quite a bit. You were able to really enrich the whole product that we were, that we were delivering. And so how have you been able to intertwine that? Because hasn't that taken time to figure that out without being it confusing or what kind of process did you go through or was it just naturally for you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the funny thing is I hate that I'm, I'm just total truth is that my clients that I work with, I coach and I mentor have way more congruency, better organizational strategies than I do for myself. And part of it is because I'm always experimenting. So I'm always willing to test things. So a lot of times like people see stuff and they'll be like, what's this? And I'm like, I'm totally just doing the experiment. And I get that it can be confusing, but part of me going through my process of my writing my book is me articulating this better and better and really kind of piecing it together. So my process is on, is sort of like my, my, my spouse, Jill will, will attest this, that she, she preferred me actually taking us through the exact process and writing it down because she can't read my mind. And I am kind of like, I'm just testing and trying stuff. So I think people can, can be allowed and free to do it. It's just more be specific and intentional about who do you want to attract? Who do you want to connect to? And how are you going to help them? I mean, really like, and, and niche is the new big, like, like be very specific. So for me, when the surfing, you know, it was nice that we had that sort of common ground. But it really, it wouldn't matter if, if, if she had none of that background. I still would have found a way to make that connection. And that's usually what I do when I'm just trying to work with the clients. I'm trying to find what their passion, what their connection, the language they use, and connecting on the ways that, that I believe I want to help them and have them in a way that they can go, ah, oh, I get this, right? Having that aha moment. And that takes experience to do that, I think. But that's just unique to my consulting because... It's really involved, right? As you know, I mean, you have yeah. to really understand a lot of moving parts to be able to make a strategic recommendation about what they're going to do for messages that could cost them, you know, their business or their or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. But I think well, that's what's so cool is because you're always experimenting. I learned a lot, and we were able to create some really interesting products through that. And I think that's part of your brand. But I'd love to go back to if you could talk us a little bit about your Facebook groups, because you've, I don't know how many groups you've been able to develop, but you've been able to, or not Facebook group, but networks that you've been really able ecosystems to create. Ecosystems. You've been really able to create these groups. Could you tell a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it's like, it's, it started with me learning how to create a social following on a particular social channel. 
So like, I remember, you know, growth hacking, you want to call that, you know, on Instagram. What I realized as both is a good concept, but also momentum is that like anyone, I'm like, not everyone is on any one channel and they're not on that and any one channel at any one given time. They're on a different channel sometimes. Right. So what I see is when I've created these groups is I went, okay, well, what if I actually extend that group across multiple social channels and then just connect it all? So I've created this community. It's like, so my, my biggest one is called marketer and I have a social group, uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Reddit, everything. I've got every single possible modality. It's so that what I actually post content differently in these channels. Sometimes I use one channel to recommend them going to another channel. Why would I want to do that? It's because right now with so much noise, if you're just talking in one channel, you're missing a big opportunity. The opportunity is, and I heard the, the, you know, the stat of being something like 14 to 17 times you need to see something before you're willing to make any commitment towards something. I mean, you, you got to get your message. You know, that's why there's so much uh, emphasis on repeat messaging and so forth on TV is because you need to see, have, you need to see it several times before you become familiar or trusted or whatever. So another way to do that is to actually have people cross-channel. It's called, I call it cross-channel migration. They're in my ecosystem. So if they're on my Facebook group, I want them in the, the Twitter account. I want them in the Instagram so that if I happen to catch them at the right time, I give myself more chances for moving my message or my interest board. So an ecosystem to me is everybody should, it's not about necessarily creating, like you need to be on every single social channel. I don't think that's what I'm saying. And please don't take that away. It's more, I've done it because I'm trying to understand how to leverage your channel. What I'd recommend to somebody is go, what is the ecosystem that your clients are in or the people you're trying to influence and put an emphasis on one or two channels and put most of the energy there. And we'll try to build a community. And the way to build a community, I think we were talking about why, how have I built all these communities is I focused on one simple thing. Show up with tons of value in a way that's unique and different in the outside of a community and differentiated and constantly be. And it's about, it's a, actually the big win is doing a little every day. It's not like doing bursts. It's like you have to be consistent. That is the key to building a lot of these type of systems, if you want to call them that. And those communities that you're talking about, like Surf Art World is the largest community around Surf Art. Surf and Yoga Camps is the largest one around that. I basically have I've created like this little ecosystem of content. So I have a little channel. So that if I ever want to share something, I've got a whole group I can put it to. So when we did this one client webinar with a famous rock star and I wanted to reach this audience, I was able to drop that invite in and, and totally influence the, the results. I know we got over 80,000 people watching. That was absolutely amazing. Yeah. What I like about it, and it's true because I've been following you in Marketeer and you do come with this really funky value, like these very avant-garde new ways of thinking about marketing. It is true. I get like a daily or frequent dosage from you and then you provide consistency. So if someone was going to start out, what channel would you recommend them to be on if they are a small business B2B, would it be LinkedIn then? Or what would you, what have you found a good channel? In terms of a channel, it's a little bit like I feel like a doctor talking to a patient and going, not having enough information to make a prescription, right? You, you want to know so many different things before you make that recommendation. But if what you're asking is, I'll first share the process and then maybe share a couple of ones that I think are really good. So I think the process first is to go, where are your customers or the people you're trying to reach? Can you reach them? 
how do you connect with them? And, and then there's one that most people don't, they totally disregard this. They ask the question, what channel should I be on without actually really understanding where am I most comfortable? Where do I naturally go? Or what am I naturally, what kind of content do I naturally produce? Because sometimes some content just doesn't work in certain channels. And just because that's where people say they are, doesn't mean that's not, it might be less competitive on Pinterest and nobody's even thinking about it. So to me, what I try to encourage every single entrepreneur is don't listen to anyone that says this is the best practice. Use that as a, a sort of like a way of going, okay, that's interesting. That's trending. There's that's a piece of information, but go find your own way. That process of experimenting for yourself and leaning into what resources do I have? What am I naturally comfortable with? Or what level of team do I support do I have? Like just really taking a real good assessment of that and then matching it with where are my actual customers and can I scale in a way that gives me some control? So the problem with a lot of the platforms like Facebook is you build a community and right now communities are great, but pages used to be great, but now they, they charge you to reach your people on, on uh, your, your company page. I have 16,000 followers on my blog page and I can maybe reach 500. I have to pay to boost the chain content to them. Well, that's kind of a ripoff because I actually helped build that platform. I helped they, under the promise that they said, hey, we're going to let you create a group of a following, a subscription following. And then they changed the rules. Well, that is the downfall of all these apps. So any recommendation I have, I have the big warning sign, which is the goal should be for you to have uninhibited no control of platform between you and your customer. So no matter what platform you do, just migrate them. And I think the easiest one makes sense is, is to their phone number or email and email being when you get permission with, then you have no barrier. So just view the platforms as part of the ecosystem. But at the end of the day, you want them to land with you. The email addresses are really key. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, that's where you have direct control. And that's what I like about this whole face-to-face Zoom marketing. It's like, now you can get people to do FaceTime. There's nothing in between you. They're not, you know, I know they're trying to make the Facebook lives and different things. You can, you can accelerate with that. But the problem with that is that they still will eventually have control of that. So if you don't know how to be able to create your own gated direct content or unfiltered content, if you want to call it that, uh, direct with people, at the end of the day, the platform owns your business, whether you want to admit it or not. Oh, that's really interesting. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So hypothetically, you're, you're focused on your, your entire network of, of being able to activate people on your podcast and it's all on Facebook. What happens if Facebook disappears? Going back to your question about which platform is, is like kind of an ideal one. The one that I like the most, quite honestly, is LinkedIn. And the reason why is it's the only platform that you really know who the person is. And if you're trying to do business, it's business to business especially, you can really differentiate and you know that the person that if they're following you or not, you can direct message them once you connect. It just, you know, of all the platforms, it's the one that makes the most sense. There's less nonsense on there. The algorithm is really good. So when you post stuff, but this, even they are making the algorithm change in an effort to make the user experience. So, you know, you're still going to go, it's going to be, it's just, it's just not as ineffective as, as Facebook would be, for example. But I think what people get caught up in is they go, yeah, but I've built and invested all this time on Facebook. I've got, you know, 5,000 followers on Facebook. It's like starting over. And I'm like, I don't want to tell you. Like, you're going to get, and every new platform that comes on, you're going to have to do it. Like, look at TikTok, you know? 
not that I would recommend anyone listening to TikTok, but you have to start over again, right? It's just a never ending story that you're going to have to keep going through. So what do you think that the two one two channels I'd love for you to, to, to give a little bit of your insights on is TikTok and then Reddit. Both I have the of all the channels, they're the ones that I have the least interaction with. I have channels on both of them. TikTok, great for millennial and younger uh, engagement. People are trying to tell that it's it's getting it's increasing and it's there's gonna be more people on there than, than ever with these short videos. I think they're they're interesting. It's going to do better than Vine, which died. But I was also Snapchat. Where's Snapchat right now? It's not even, yeah. So it's in the same category of this trendy, what's now being why? Because it's really cool to look at videos and it's really shareable. And it's like, to me, it's more about snackable junk food than it is sustainable content. So I don't put much energy or time there. So for me, TikTok is a thumbs down. I'm still paying attention to it. I'm still on there, but I'm not doing much there. Reddit, on the other hand, pretty different. What do you think about the security? Because a lot of, uh, I was very much on TikTok, but then when we've gotten all these warnings from the government, at least the U.S. government, about the security issue with TikTok, do you think that's going to make it lose its lose its influence? Maybe temporarily. I mean, I think if the kids, are, they don't really care. I think it's like the whole security and privacy. Like it's over time, it just people just become. It works. It's easy. Oh, really? Is it really going to be a secure thing? Until something unbelievably terrible happens with it, it's people still use it. Even when it's banned, it might make it more exciting. It might actually give it more proof to that category for all I know. So I'm not sure about the security component of it, having a pass or fail for it. I just know this platform and how it functions from a marketing standpoint, it's not really, I'm not giving it a thumbs up. I'm like, unless you're, you know, a really trendy business talking to that group and you want to keep it, because you basically the volume of content you have to produce to maintain or grow an audience there is pretty substantial. So I like places where you can create content and it can continue to be purposeful over a period of time. It gives you, treat like an asset. It doesn't turn into a piece of fruit. It turns into something that's like about a little more a shelf life. So what about Reddit then? I love Reddit. I think Reddit's really cool. It takes a long time to be successful at it. It's a bit weird. It's the place where you hear stories where something gets picked up on Reddit and it can blow up. So it has that potential to be spread quickly. I would view it as a content activation place. And it's not one where you can just post links and it's magically going to happen. There's a variety of different things you can do, which is create a subreddit, which is where people can follow your topic. So I created one for Master Code that was around chronic healing. And I actually recently logged in. I had forgotten about it. And it totally has totally grown without any input from me because I created this separate and people can actually post. And it's just sort of like it's maintaining and growing on its own with no input, no approval, nothing from me. It just sort of happened. So that was kind of cool. I mean, that's that's something I was unexpect, wasn't expecting. Um, it's a great place to go find content, original, unique content, source content. But it can be a little bit confusing. It's not super user-friendly. The way that I would approach Reddit as a, as a strategy is just one of the bullets in your gun and start following things you're passionate about or that you're interested in learning about. Create um, a subreddit maybe about a category that you're in and use it to point people to content that you want. Put a bit.ly, which is a trackable URL to it, and see if you're actually getting leads. And I've done that 
believe it or not, with um, with clients. I went to some motorsports client, and I was so surprised. I have two percent of my traffic coming from Reddit. I never would have guessed it. And so, to me, if you think about that as a number, you go, "Well, two percent—that's not very much." You think about the way to be successful and all. That's why an ecosystem is so interesting. It's not like people are looking for that one thing that's going to get them a large number. If you do all these little things, these little channels, 2% plus 5% plus 8%, starts adding up to 12%. That's pretty decent when you start looking at it if it takes a very little effort to leverage. So I look at the wins as incremental across channels. 1% lift compound is quite a bit. Yeah, no, no, it is. We're kind of kind of to the close, but I wanted to ask you, since you've been like in the marketing sphere, what has been your commercial or ad that's really impacted you? I think that there's one. It's one from an old instinct. There's actually two two different and it's copy headline, believe it or not. So you like it. It's totally all about the copy. One is it's a picture, it's an old instinct surf ad. Uh, in fact, I actually use this ad copy in my book. You see the sort of image of a bunch of surfers of uh, different shape and form, different boards, like it's the whole looks like a, a whole motley crew. And they're just sitting there, there's like just little bumps on the horizon. It's it. They're sort of waiting. like they're out there, but they're looking up the horizon. And the, t- the copy reads, waiting for waves is okay. Some people spend their whole lives waiting for nothing. And I have, I, I love that quote. It's, it's, it's awesome, right? And it, what it does is why it's meaningful is because to me as a surfer, I connected to that. And so, you know, when I looked for, I think anyone that looks at, at that, when I read that ad, it no longer became an ad. In that moment, it became a meaningful piece of content. I have that poster from the surf shop. I bought it from the surf shop, and I have it hanging in my garage. That's when an ad turns into a piece of content. It's meant to sell me. The other one that they have that's a little different is a picture of this big, incredible cresting wave and a sole surfer going down the wave. The crest is just like, it's trying to catch up to like an avalanche behind it. And the copy is really simple. It says, either you get the wave or the wave gets you. Wow. What brand is it? Instinct. It's an old uh, surf brand. Is that the most brilliant copy? Was it the most? There's other ones that I think, you know, from different angles that, that I just would look at. But for me, that had the most meaning. And what I like about the meaning of that is what I think is the most pressing thing for anyone looking at copy, advertising, and marketing is when your marketing doesn't feel like marketing you're doing the best kind of marketing. That's called groundswell marketing. You're connecting with people. And it connected with you. That's right. That's about the congruency, right? It was really congruent. I was like, oh my God, I know how that feels. I, you know that it's like, the, I think there's a famous, another tagline for Billabong. It's an old one. It's called, only a surfer knows the feeling. They're saying, hey, our customer, only our tribe, our little niche group, we get this feeling and everyone else is an outsider. So that makes you feel more connected, right? So that, to me, is like when you're looking at congruency, it's that type of thinking that makes people buy in. Yeah, so they're like bought, bought into the concept. Wow, that's really cool. Then I have my last question. Since you're always onto these uh, trends and so forth, what is a hack that you use? And then what is kind of a trend that you're seeing? So it's actually two questions. So I'll start with the trend that might turn into a hack. So the trend is like the one we just saw with Tony Robbins at this UPW virtual. And, and you and I had this, we just talked about this before the podcast, that you and I actually had a very similar idea on a scale that we were already testing. This is pre-COVID. We were already here. And I wrote an article about it in Medium, which is called Face-to-Face Marketing. 
And to me, this face-to-face marketing is the new trend, which is if I put a, a, an ad up and it's overproduced or a commercial, it's overproduced and it's like using stock footage and stuff, that it's less human and less real than I saw some ads that actually use Zoom, actual Zoom calls in the ad. I believe that they are going to have a more meaningful connection because it feels more real. People are looking for more real. So in terms of trend, I think it's about human to human connection. I think that's where the trend is moving towards trust. And by trust, I see your face. I see that you have a dog in your background. It feels real. Like to me, I think that people are really resonating with that. And so Tony Robbins, this whole virtual Zoom on mass scale, I think is even if COVID goes away, it's now a trend. It's now a permanent part of how we function. And you see that 25 to 30% of people will never go back to an office. They'll stay working from home. That alone is means that we're going to be using this tool more. I believe that the version that we're looking at today, you and I are on Zoom right now. We saw Tony Robbins on Zoom and he did on scale. It's 360, 22,000 people on Zoom at the exact same time. Unbelievable. I believe that we're only seeing the beginning of what, now you're seeing a little hint of it changing. So anyone that wasn't at this event, I'll just describe it. They had an app that you could complement your Zoom experience where you can actually send Tony a heart, a smile, a thumb up digitally that showed up on your screen so that he could see as he's talking in real time, your response. So now you're seeing an app stack adding onto Zoom. You're seeing now where it's going to create more intense experiential connection with the human video, I believe is that is just the tipping point of the very beginning of the trend, which I think is part of the hack. You know, the hack, I think if there's a hack to be had now is I think people are looking for, like I said, human connection. And I think that the the best hack going right now is offering direct access and doing it on scale. It's like human intimacy at scale is the hack. I'd say that, that I would describe with using Instagram, with using Zoom or different things, is how can you add incredible value and be incredibly intimate and do it on scale? It's interesting you say that because that's like with the Tony Robbins thing. He could talk directly because he had these panels everyone on there on the screen. He could talk directly to one person out of the 22,000. He could pick someone, say their name. And then mm-hmm. if they were sitting down and not standing up and cheering, he goes, why are you sitting? You need to stand up now. So it was really interesting how intimate it could be and yet how grand it could be and it's exactly what we're talking about is that human intimacy at scale it's because you don't want to not be on screen because you don't know if you're ever going to be selected but at the same what are the chances but yet there's a chance yeah there's technology that i think is going to make this even more profound so there was a guy that invented a thing called digisense he had the patent for it this is back in the personalization days and I know that this is expanding, is there's going to be a future when there will be a sensor on your computer. You're on a a cooking show with 20,000 other people that are on Zoom with the chef, Gordon Ramsay, and you'll be able to smell what he's cooking or how he's the freshness of the basil because they've digitized and created the DNA of numerical values for how they actually can project the scent. So to me, that is, if you want to talk about like future, future trend, like, but to me, it comes down to one simple thing. People want to connect on human level with intimacy, trust, and get further faster. Like we're all trying to do more with less time and just follow that, right? So the hack of, I think, a lot of what a lot of people were trying to do before won't work anymore. 
trying to just get people to follow you and post stuff and, and do automation, like marketing automation, just have your feed just be automatically going and just posting stuff and thinking that by doing that, that'll grow. I think, can you not tell now when you go, yeah, this feels a little bit over curated and then uh, there's too much automation. You have to, something about it feels icky, but when you know, it's sort of a little slightly intermittent and this maybe a spelling mistake, it's like the imperfections makes what make us human. I think people, that's what we're So I think the hack of right now is to be more human. Be more human. Thank you. That's yeah. a great ending. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. It's always awesome. a learning experience for me. And, and I think you're right. It's, it's about being human. And, and learning how to be human. I think, at least for me, I've had a challenge being so corporatized. How do you shed that off? But it's a process, as you said. Yeah, and people are putting, I think we've been all, the whole, you know, making our feet our best version of ourselves and, you know, um, overproducing. I think this is a great place still for branding because it's, it's about clarity, but still adding the, being a little vulnerable, being very authentic and being accessible in a way, I think is, is what's been about. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode or text a couple of your friends right now to WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to tag me at Torin B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms.